Section 52 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Tad Davis. Chapter 14, The Reformation Under Edward VI, by A. F. Pollard, M.A., Part 3. The success of the French was mainly due to England's domestic troubles. Levies which had been raised for service in France were diverted to Devon or Norfolk. Fortunately, both these revolts were crushed before the war with France had lasted a fortnight. The rising in the West, for which religion had furnished a pretext and enclosures the material, died away after the fight at the Barnes of Crediton and the relief of Exeter by Russell on August 9. The Eastern rebels, who were stirred solely by social grievances, caused more alarm, and a suspicion, lest the Princess Mary should be at their back, gave some of the council sleepless nights. The Marquis of Northampton was driven out of Norwich, and the restraint and orderliness of the rebels' proceedings secured them a good deal of sympathy in East Anglia. Warwick, however, to whom the command was now entrusted, was a soldier of real ability, and with the help of Italian and Spanish mercenaries, he routed the insurgents on August 26th at the Battle of Dussendale near Mousehold Hill. His victory made Warwick the hero of the gentlemen of England. He had always opposed the protector's agrarian schemes, and he was now in a position to profit by their failure. The revolts had placed Somerset in a predicament from which a modern minister would have sought refuge in resignation. His sympathy with the insurgents weakened his action against them, and his readiness to pardon and reluctance to proscribe exasperated most of his colleagues. He was still obstinate in his assertion of the essential justice of the rebels' complaints, and was believed to be planning for the approaching meeting of Parliament more radical measures of redress than had yet been laid before it. Paget wrote in alarm, lest far-reaching projects should be rashly adopted which required ten years' deliberation and other officials made Cecil the recipient of fearful warnings against the designs of the Commonwealth's men. The council and the governing classes generally were in no mood for measures of conciliation, and disasters abroad and disorders at home afforded a good pretext for removing the man to whom it was convenient to ascribe them. The malcontents found an excellent party leader in Warwick. Few men in English history have shown a greater capacity for subtle intrigue or smaller respect for principle. A brilliant soldier, a skillful diplomatist, and an accomplished man of the world, he was described at the time as the modern Alcibiades. No one could better turn to his own purposes, the passions and interests of others, or throw away his tools with less compunction when they had served his end. Masking profound ambitions under the guise of the utmost deference to his colleagues, he never, at the time of his greatest influence, attempted to claim a position of formal superiority. Afterwards, when he was practically ruler of England, he sat only fourth in the order of precedence at the council board, and content with the substance of power, he eschewed such titles as protector of the realm or governor of the king's person. In the general feeling of discontent, he had little difficulty in uniting various sections in an attack on the protector. The public at large were put in mind of Somerset's ill success abroad. The landed gentry needed no reminder of his attempts to check their enclosures. Protestant zealots recalled his slackness in dealing with mass priests, and Catholics hated his prayer book. 
Hopes were held out to all. Gardner and the Tower expected his release. Bonner appealed against his deprivation, and Southampton made sure of being restored to the woolsack. Privy councillors had private griefs as well as public grounds to allege. The protector had usurped his position in defiance of Henry's will. He had neglected their advice and browbeaten them when they remonstrated. He consulted and enriched only his chosen friends. Somerset House was erected, but Warwick's parks were ploughed up. It was at Warwick's and Southampton's houses in Holborn that the plot against the protector was hatched in September 1549, and the immediate excuse for his deposition appears to have been the abandonment, after a brave defense, of Haddington, the chief English stronghold in Scotland, September 14. Somerset had left Westminster on the 12th with the king and removed to Hampton Court. Cranmer, Paget, St. John, the two secretaries of state, Peter and Sir Thomas Smith, and the protector's own secretary, Cecil, remained with him till the beginning of October, but the rest of the council secretly gathered in London and collected their retainers. The aldermen of the city were on their side, but the apprentices and poorer classes generally adhered to the protector. One of Warwick's methods of enlisting the support of the army was to send their captains to Somerset with petitions for higher pay than he knew the protector could grant. The duke apparently suspected nothing, unless suspicion be traced in the matter of importance to which he referred in his letter of the 27th, urging Russell and Herbert to hasten their return from the West. But by the 3rd or 4th of October, rumors of what was happening reached him. On the latter day, that crafty fox Shebna, as Knox called St. John, deserted to his colleagues in London and secured the tower by displacing Somerset's friends. On the 6th, Somerset sent Peter to demand an explanation of the council's conduct, but Peter did not return. The protector now thought of raising the masses against the classes. Handbills were distributed, inciting the commons to rise in his defense. Extortioners and great masters were conspiring, they were told, against the protector because he had procured the peasants their pardon. On the night of the 6th, he hurried the king to Windsor for the sake of greater security. But either he repented of his efforts to stir a social war, or he saw that they would be futile. For in a letter to the council on the 7th, he offered to submit upon reasonable conditions drawn up by representatives of both parties. The council in London delayed their answer until they had heard from Russell and Herbert, to whom both parties had appealed for help. The commanders of the Western Army were at Wilton, and their action would decide the issue of peace or war. They promptly strengthened their forces and moved up to Andover. There they found the country in a general uproar. Five or six thousand men from the neighboring counties were preparing to march to Somerset's aid. But Russell and Herbert were disgusted with the protector's inflammatory appeals to the turbulent commons. They threw the whole weight of their influence on the council's side and succeeded in quieting the commotion, reporting their measures to both the rival factions. On receipt of this intelligence, the lords in London brushed aside the conciliatory pleas of the King, Cranmer, Paget, and Smith, and took steps to effect the protector's arrest. They were aided by treacherous advice from Paget, who purchased his own immunity at the expense of his colleagues. In accordance probably with Paget's suggestions, Sir Philip Hoby was sent to Windsor on the 10th with solemn promises from the council that the duke should suffer no loss in lands, goods, or honors, and that his adherents should not be deprived of their offices. On the delivery of this message, Paget fell on his knees before the protector and, with tears in his eyes, besought him to avail himself of the council's merciful disposition. 
the others relieved of their apprehensions wept for joy and counseled submission somerset then gave way and through the diligent travail of cranmer and paget his servants were removed from attendance on the king's person when this measure had been effected the council no longer considered itself bound to observe the promises by which it had induced the protector and his adherents to submit wingfield sillinger and williams were sent with an armed force to arrest them all except cranmer and paget on the twelfth the whole council went down to windsor to complete the revolution somerset was conveyed to london paraded as a prisoner through the streets and shut up in the tower smith was deprived of the secretaryship expelled from the council and also sent to the tower and a like fate befell the rest of those who had remained faithful to the protector of the victors warwick resumed the office of lord high admiral which had been vacant since seymour's attainder dr nicholas wotton who was also dean of canterbury and of york succeeded smith as secretary and paget received a peerage in reward for his services the distribution of the more important offices was deferred until it was settled which section of the protector's opponents was to have the upper hand in the new government for the present it was advisable to meet parliament with as united a front as possible in order to secure its sanction for the protector's deposition and its reversal of so much of his policy as both sections agreed in detesting on the broader aspects of that policy there was not much difference of opinion most people of influence distrusted that liberty on which somerset set so much store sir john mason for instance an able and educated politician described his repeal of henry the eighth's laws concerning verbal treason as the worst act done in that generation and in accordance with this view a bill was introduced declaring it felony to preach and hold divers opinions differences about the definition of the offence apparently caused this bill to fail but measures sufficiently drastic were passed to stifle any opposition to the new government ministers sought to perpetuate their tenure of office by making it high treason for any one to attempt to turn them out that tremendous penalty the heaviest known to the law had hitherto been reserved for offences against the sacrosanct persons of royalty it was now employed to protect those who wielded royal authority it became high treason for twelve or more persons to meet with the object of killing or even imprisoning a member of the privy council an unparalleled enactment which had it been retrospective would have rendered the privy council itself liable to a charge of treason for its action against the protector the same clause imposed the same penalty upon persons assembling for the purpose of altering the laws and the act also omitted the safeguards somerset had provided against the abuse of such treason laws as he had left on the statute book it contained no clause limiting the time within which charges of treason were to be preferred or requiring the evidence of two witnesses the fact that this act did not pass until it had been read six times in the commons and six times in the lords may indicate that it encountered considerable opposition but there was probably little hesitation in reversing the protector's agrarian policy parliament was not indeed content with that it met november fourth fifteen forty nine in a spirit of exasperation and revenge and it went back not only upon the radical proposals of somerset but also upon the whole tenor of tudor land legislation enclosures had been forbidden again and again they were now expressly declared to be legal and parliament enacted 
that lords of the manor might approve themselves of their wastes woods and pastures notwithstanding the gainsaying and contradiction of their tenants in order that the process might be without let or hindrance it was made treason for forty and felony for twelve persons to meet for the purpose of breaking down any enclosure or enforcing any right of way to summon such an assembly or incite to such an act was also felony and any copyholder refusing to help in repressing it forfeited his copyhold for life the same penalty was attached to hunting in any enclosure and to assembling with the object of abating rents or the price of corn but the prohibition against capitalists conspiring to raise prices was repealed and so were the taxes which somerset had imposed on sheep and woolen cloths the masses had risen against the classes and the classes took their revenge this however was not the kind of reaction most desired by the catholics who led by southampton had assisted warwick to overthrow somerset southampton was moved by private grudges but he also desired a return to catholic usages or at least a pause in the process of change and for a time it seemed that his party might prevail those cruel beasts the romanists wrote one evangelical divine were already beginning to triumph to revive the mass and to threaten faithful servants of christ with the fate of the fallen duke they were said another struggling earnestly for their kingdom and even parliament felt it necessary to denounce rumors that the old latin service and superstitious uses would be restored southampton was one of the six lords to whose charge the person of the king was specially entrusted the earl of arundel was another and southwell reappeared at the council board bonner had been deprived by cranmer in september but no steps were taken to find a successor and the decision might yet be reversed gardiner petitioned for release while hooper thought himself in the greatest peril so the balance trembled but southampton was no match for that most faithful and intrepid soldier of christ as hooper styled warwick england he went on cannot do without him neither could the earl afford to discard such zealous adherents as the reformers in them he found his main support they compared him with moses and joshua and described him and dorset as the two most shining lights of the church of england they believed that somerset had been deposed for his slackness in the cause of religious persecution warwick resolved to run no such risk the tendency towards religious change which henry the eighth had failed to stop was still strong and warwick threw himself into the stream privately he seems if he believed in anything to have favored catholic doctrines and the consciousness of his insincerity made him all the louder in his professions of protestant zeal and all the more eager to push to extremes the principles of the reformers he became in hooper's words a most holy and fearless instrument of the word of god but this policy could not be combined with the conciliation of catholics and the coalition which had driven somerset from power fell asunder as soon as its immediate object had been achieved and it was called upon to formulate a policy of its own southampton ceased to attend the council after october and parliament which had completely reversed the protector's liberal and social program effected almost as great a change in the methods and aims of his religious policy the direction may have been the same but it is pure assumption to suppose that the protector would have gone so far as his successors or employed the same violence to attain his ends 
The difference in character between the two administrators was vividly illustrated in the session of Parliament, which began a month after the change. Under Somerset there had always been a good attendance of bishops, and a majority of them had voted for all his religious proposals. At the opening of the first session after his fall, there were only nine bishops, and a majority of them voted against two of the three measures of ecclesiastical importance passed during its course. One was the act for the destruction of all service books other than the Book of Common Prayer and Henry's Primer, and the other was a renewal of the provision for the reform of canon law. Majority of bishops voted for the bill appointing a commission to draw up a new ordinal, but when they complained that their jurisdiction was despised and drafted a bill for its restoration, the measure was rejected. The prorogation of Parliament, February 1550, was followed by the final overthrow of the Catholic Party and the complete establishment of Warwick's control over the government. He had already begun to pack the council, which had remained practically unchanged since Henry's death by adding to it five of his own adherents. Southampton was now expelled from the council, Arundel was deprived of his office of Lord Chamberlain, and Southwell was sent to the Tower. The offices vacated by the Catholic lords and Somerset's party were distributed among Warwick's friends. St. John became Earl of Wiltshire and Lord High Treasurer. Warwick succeeded him as Lord Great Master of the Household and President of the Council, and Northampton succeeded Warwick as Great Chamberlain of England. Arundel's office of Chamberlain of the Household was conferred on Wentworth, and Paget's controllership on Wingfield. Russell was created Earl of Bedford, and Herbert was made President of the Council of Wales. The new government now felt firm in the saddle, and it proceeded to turn its attention to foreign affairs. His failure abroad had been the chief ostensible reason for Somerset's downfall, but his successors had done nothing to redeem their implied promise of amendment. In spite of the fact that the agrarian insurrections, the immediate cause of the protector's reverses in France and Scotland, had been suppressed, and large bodies of troops thus set free for service elsewhere, not a place had been recaptured in France, and in Scotland nearly all the English strongholds fell during the winter into the enemy's hands. The council preferred peace to an attempt to retrieve their fortunes by war, and early in 1550 Warwick made secret overtures to Henry II. The French pushed their advantage to the uttermost, and the peace concluded in March was the most ignominious treaty signed by England during the century. Bologna, which was to have been restored four years later for 800,000 crowns, was surrendered for half that sum. All English strongholds in Scotland were to be given up without compensation. England bound itself to make no war on that country unless fresh grounds of offense were given, and condoned the marriage of Mary to the Dauphin of France. The net result was the abandonment of the whole Tudor policy towards Scotland, the destruction of English influence across the border, and the establishment of French control in Edinburgh. Henry II began to speak of himself as King of Scotland. It was as much subject to him, he said, as France itself, and he boasted that by this peace he had now added to these two realms a third, namely England, of whose king, subjects, and resources he had such absolute disposal that the three might be reckoned as one kingdom of which he was king. To make himself yet more secure, he began a policy of active, though secret, intervention in Ireland. Had he succeeded in this, he would really have held England in the hollow of his hand. 
had a son been born to mary stuart and francis the second england might even have become a french province fortunately the accession of mary tudor broke the french ring which girt england round about but it was certainly not warwick's merit that england was delivered from perhaps the most pressing foreign danger with which she was ever threatened while however the policy which warwick adopted involved a reversal of the time-honored burgundian alliance and a criminal neglect of england's ultimate interests its immediate effects were undeniably advantageous to the government it was at once relieved from the pressure of war on two fronts and an intolerable drain on the exchequer was stopped security from foreign interference afforded an excuse for reducing expenditure on armaments and military forces and even for seriously impairing the effective strength of the navy the creation of which had been henry the eighth's least questionable achievement and the council was left free to pursue its religious policy even to the persecution of the princess mary without fear of interruption from her cousin the emperor the alliance of england scotland and france was a combination which charles could not afford to attack more particularly when the league between henry the second maurice of saxony and the reviving protestant princes in germany gave him more than enough to do to defend himself france the persecutor of heresy at home lent her support to the english government while it pursued its campaign against roman doctrine just as she had countenanced henry the eighth while he was uprooting the roman jurisdiction the path of the government was thus made easy abroad but at home it was crowded with difficulties the diversity of religious opinion which henry the eighth's severity had only checked and somerset's lenience had encouraged grew ever more marked the new learning was in the absence of effective opposition carrying all before it in the large cities and the more trenchantly a preacher denounced the old doctrine the greater were the crowds which gathered to hear him the favorite divine in london was hooper who went far beyond anything which the council had yet done or at present intended between twenty and thirty editions of the bible had appeared since the beginning of the reign and nearly all were made vehicles by their annotations of attacks on catholic dogma altars images painted glass windows became the object of a popular violence which the council was unable even if it was willing to restrain and the parochial clergy indulged in a ritual lawlessness which the bishops encouraged or checked according to their own individual preferences that the majority of the nation disliked both these changes and their method may perhaps be assumed but the men of the old learning made little stand against the men of the new in a revolution the first advantage generally lies with the aggressors the catholics had not been rallied nor the counter-reformation organized and their natural leaders had been silenced for their opposition to the government but there were deeper causes at work the catholic church had latterly denied to the laity any voice in the determination of catholic doctrine but now the laity had been called in to decide discussion had descended from court and from senate into the street where only one of the parties was adequately equipped for the contest catholics still were content to do as they had been taught and to leave the matter to the clergy they were ill-fitted to cope with antagonists who regarded theology as a matter for private judgment and had by study of the scriptures to some extent prepared themselves for its exercise the authority of the church to which catholics bowed had suffered many rude shocks and in the appeal to the scriptures they were no match for the zeal and conviction of their opponents 
Under the circumstances, it might seem that the Council would have done well to resort to some of Henry VIII's methods for enforcing uniformity, and indeed both parties agreed in demanding greater rigor. But they could not agree on the question to whom the rigor should be applied. Their contentions indirectly tended towards the emancipation of conscience from the control of authority, though such a solution seemed shocking alike to those who believed in the royal and to those who believed in the papal supremacy. There was no course open to the government that would have satisfied all contemporary or modern critics. England was in the throes of a revolution in which no government could have maintained perfect order or avoided all persecution. The Council's policy lacked the extreme moderation and humanity of Somerset's rule, but it averted open disruption and did so at the cost of less rigor than characterized the rule of Henry VIII, of Mary, or of Elizabeth. At one end of the religious scale, Joan Botcher, whom Somerset had left in prison after her condemnation by the ecclesiastical courts in the hope that she might be converted, was burnt in May 1550, and a year later another heretic, George Van Paris, suffered a similar fate. Against Roman Catholics, the penalties of the first act of uniformity now began to be enforced, but they were limited to clerical offenders, and of these there seemed to have been comparatively few. Dr. Cole was expelled from the wardenship of New College, and Dr. Morwen, president of Corpus Christi, Oxford, was sent for a time to the fleet. Two divines, Crispin and Mormon, who had been implicated in the Cornish Rebellion, were confined in the tower. Two of Gardner's chaplains, Seton and Watson, are said to have been subjected to some restraint. Four others, John Boxall, afterwards Queen Mary's secretary, William Rastel, Moore's nephew, Nicholas Harpsfield and Dr. Richard Smith, whose recantations were as numerous as his apologies for the Catholic faith, fled to Flanders, and these, with Cardinal Pole, whose attainder was not reversed, make up the list of those who are said by Roman martyrologists to have suffered for their belief in the reign of Edward VI. To them, however, must be added five or six bishops who were deposed. Bonner was the only bishop deprived in 1550, but in the following year, Gardner, Heath of Worcester, Day of Chichester, and Voisey of Exeter all vacated their sees, and Tunstall of Durham was sent to the tower. Their places were filled with zealous reformers. Coverdale became Bishop of Exeter, Ridley succeeded Bonner at London, and Ponnet took Ridley's see. Ponnet was soon transferred to Gardner's seat at Winchester, and Scorey supplied the place left vacant by Ponnet, but was almost at once translated to Day's bishopric at Chichester. Warwick wished to enthrone John Knox at Rochester as whetstone to Cranmer, but the Scottish reformer proved ungrateful, and Rochester, which had seen five bishops in as many years, remained vacant to the end of the reign. The most remarkable of these creations and translations, which were made by letters patent, was perhaps the elevation of Hooper to the See of Gloucester. Hooper had, after a course of Zwinglian theology at Zurich, become chaplain to the protector on the eve of his fall, but he found a more powerful friend in Warwick who made him Lent preacher at court in February 1550. He was one of those zealous and guileless reformers in whom Warwick found his choicest instruments. He combined fervent denunciations of the evils of the times with extravagant admiration for the man in whom they were most strikingly personified and as soon as his Lenten sermons were finished, he was offered the See of Gloucester. He declined it from scruples about the new ordinal, the oath invoking the saints, and the episcopal vestments. After a nine-months controversy in which the whole bench of bishops with Bucer and Martyr 
were arrayed against him, and only John Alasco and Micronius appeared on his side, and after some weeks' confinement in the fleet, Hooper allowed himself to be consecrated. The simultaneous vacancy of Worcester enabled the council to sweep away one of Henry VIII's new bishoprics by uniting it with Gloucester, and another was abolished by the translation of Thirlby from Westminster to Norwich, and the reunion of the former see with London. These episcopal changes afforded scope for another sort of ecclesiastical spoliation. Most of the new bishops were compelled to alienate some of their manners to courtiers as the price of their elevation, and Ponnet went so far as to surrender all his lands in return for a fixed stipend of two thousand marks. These lands were for the most part distributed among Warwick's adherents, and no small portion of the chantry endowments and much church plate found its way to the same destination. Somerset had issued a commission in 1547 for taking a general inventory of church goods in order to prevent the private embezzling which was so common just before and during the course of the Reformation, and this measure was supplemented by various orders to particular persons or corporations to restore such plate and ornaments as they had appropriated. But it may be doubted whether these prohibitions were very effectual, and after Somerset's fall, private and public spoliation went on rapidly until it culminated, March 1551, in a comprehensive seizure by the government of all such church plate as remained unappropriated. End of section 52. Read by Tad Davis.